Okay, welcome back. We are visiting with the distinguished investigative journalist, Mike Whitney. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Our focus tonight has been on issues around false narratives surrounding the presentation of the Syrian conflict to the American public, the abandonment of media responsibilities to inform the public, and we will end the show with a discussion of the recent developments around CrowdStrike and Russiagate. An archive of this show can be found in the coming days at pedrogatos.org. And your questions and comments are always welcome at pgatos00 at gmail.com. We return to our critical analysis and dialogue with the investigative reporter, Mike Whitney. So I guess for me, the fact that we say it's a war on terrorism, yet the terrorists are our biggest allies in this part of the world. The fact that by invading Iraq, we increased the terrorist stronghold in Iraq, that by invading Libya, we incredibly multiplied the existence of jihadist-type forces in, in Libya. While obliterating the Libyan government, which was responsible for creating the African country with the highest human development index on the African continent. And here we are employing them and giving them free cross-border transportation through our ally as we remain silent, as Turkey does all these violations with these jihadist groups as well. We are so enmeshed in this terrorism, yet the American public is convinced that the only reason we're there is to stop terrorism. That's the big just being, you know, taken for a ride type of thing. This next deal I wanted to share with you, when you talk about Syria, right now they actually, a report came out just last week about the U.S. using wheat as a weapon of war in Syria, that there was actually thermal balloons dropped from Apache helicopters, U.S. helicopters, U.S. occupation forces flew over the, uh, the area and destroyed parts of a big wheat-growing region. Without getting into all of the basics there, I wanted to really just turn the attention to a recent presentation that Bashar Jarafi, the uh, UN diplomat from Syria to the UN, made back on the uh, 18th of May. And he was uh, speaking at the UN Security Council video session on the situation in Syria. You know, we just never hear the Syrian government position. We only hear the U.S. government perspective on Syria, uh, particularly with respect to the impact and legality or illegality status of, of U.S. sanctions and other coercive restraints imposed on Syria by U.S. foreign policy. So listen to this deal here, if you would, Mike, and I wanted you to comment on it. My recording wasn't all that strong, so I took notes and just in about five minutes or so kind of encapsulated his 17-minute, I think, presentation here. So check this out. Last Monday, May the 18th, 2020, Bashar Jafari, who currently serves as Syrian's permanent representative to the UN, shared some words at the UN Security Council video session on the situation in Syria. He uh, indicated that sanctions imposed by the EU and the United States cannot be justified because they are illegal by nature and by definition, that they are an attempt to circumvent the legitimacy of the UN Security Council and aim at undermining the sovereignty of the Syrian state, that being promoted by the Western governments that impose coercive measures on Syria is nothing but a desperate attempt to humanize their vicious behavior and the economic terrorism 
and collective punishment practiced by them against the Syrian people in the areas that are under government control. That, that humanitarian and medical supplies to Syria are at zero limits due to the imposition of a wide package of restrictions and preconditions for those supplies. That Syria will not give in to these dictates in any way. That their delegation reiterates and demands that the Security Council to immediately mandate the Secretary General to submit to the Security Council within 30 days a comprehensive report on the disastrous impacts of the unilateral coercive measures on the Syrian people, as this is an essential part of the humanitarian concerns and the impartial, objective, and professional role of the UN in humanitarian work. Jafari goes on to affirm that the Brussels conferences and stresses the fact that these conferences are nothing but propaganda aiming at the implementation of agendas of some hostile countries that organize and sponsor these conferences in a flagrant politicization of humanitarian work and the imposition of their own preconditions. The Syrian government also renews its demands that the UN does not participate in such conferences. It is a fact that has been confirmed by the confessions of a number of ISIS terrorists who have recently been captured by the Syrian Arab army and who confirmed that they had been trained by the terrorist Magawara group under the supervision of the American occupation forces. Such behavior has been faced with the absolute silence of the UN Council. Jafari chastises the NATO as an umbrella for the defense of their allies and it's turning a blind eye to these violations of international law and the principles and purposes of the UN in light of their sponsorship and investment in terrorist organizations, Al-Nusra Front, and its partner terrorist groups. Their forces have reorganized, these terrorist organizations have, and their presence in northwestern Syria to launch further terrorist attacks. One attack was in the village of Tangera in the northwest. It led to a number of deaths and wounding of many other soldiers. Moreover, terrorists of the Turkish-backed Turkestan Islamic Party destroyed the tower of Zeytun power plant. It's a thermal power plant in the Idlib countryside, which is worth about $44 million of repair after they had looted with Turkish technicians, cooperatives, plants, equipment was looted and stolen, estimated to be worth $660 million and transported into Turkish territory through crossings controlled by the terrorist organization and their Turkish sponsors. Ahar al-Sham, headquartered in the Idlib province, is one of the best armed terrorist groups, along with Jaish al-Islam, are two main rebel groups supported by Turkey. On February 18, 2018, Ahar al-Sham merged with the Nur al-Din al-Zinki movement to form the Syrian Liberation Front. The group aims to create an Islamic state under Sharia law. The Turkish regime also continues to use water as a weapon against the Syrian civilians in the city of Al-Hasaka and its surrounding communities, cutting off water from a local station, depriving uh, a million or more Syrians of drinking water. This is a prescribed crime of war, and it is a documented crime against humanity. By constructing this dam, this Ilisu dam, it's creating this water shortage. Furthermore, U.S. occupation forces have prevented the Syrian bread crescent from working in the northeast area of Syria and have sought to replace it with illegal organizations that are not recognized by the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. 
On the other hand, the Turkish regime sought to bring the Turkish Red Crescent to work in the areas it occupies in the north and northwest of Syria and prevent the Syrian Arab Red Crescent Society, Syria's own Red Cross, from working in their own country. At the same time, their Syrian officers were attacked. There was the looting and attacking the workers that went on as well. What is worse is that the Turkish regime has pitted its affiliated terrorist groups against the Syrians' Red Crescent and urged them to prevent humanitarian access from within Syrian territory to find pretext for extending cross-border activities. And these cross-border activities, why do they need a pretext or why would they want a pretext? It's been facilitating the smuggling of arms, equipment, and supplies to the terrorist organizations. Syria emphasizes that any improvement in the humanitarian situation requires full cooperation in coordination with the Syrian government. Seizing the politicization of humanitarian action and that the hostile governments should refrain from their policies that are based on the imposition of coercive measures, preconditions, and other obstacles they impose on humanitarian and developmental assistance in Syria are the concluding remarks of the UN Ambassador Bashar Jafari. Okay, Mike, so a couple of questions for you. First, just to our audience, this process is not unique to Syria. The destroying of wheat crops, the inhibiting the water supply, being acquiescent in the electrical infrastructure being heavily damaged. These things were the very things that occurred in Iraq. Dr. Nagy outlined it very, very clearly in, in papers that we go after the infrastructure as a matter of course in order to bring a country to its knees, which is illegal. According to international law. And in any type of war situation. Dr. Thomas J. Nagy, this is a paper he wrote back in June 12, 2001. He was at the George Washington University and was connected to the Association of genocide scholars operating out of the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis that were denouncing genocide by sanctions. Dr. Nagy called this willed ignorance. Uh, in other words, we knew exactly what we were doing, but we did not share it, and therefore the ignorance of our country is a, is a form of willed ignorance. The title of his paper, The Role of Iraq Water Treatment Vulnerabilities in Halting One Genocide and Preventing Others, is highlighting the declassified DIA memo in which it actually details the predictions of loss of clean water to all of Iraq. And with the sanctions going on that prohibited chlorinators and water treatment types of equipment needed, they forecasted this disaster, this humanitarian disaster. One of the major factors behind the famous 500,000 children dying in large part because of sanction period. This is criminal, to say the least, but Americans just don't know it, just don't know about it, or else they would do something about it. The DIA extensive report that was written on January 18th, 1991, the, these were the key judgments of the DIA. It actually had the language, among other things, that UN United Nations sanctions that there was no domestic sources of both water treatment replacement parts and some essential chemicals to uh, treat water, these chlorinators, I, I presume. The Iraq water treatment vulnerabilities as of the 18th of January, 1991, key judgments by the Defense Intelligence Agency. It just shockingly reveals 
we knew exactly what we were doing in the genocidal process, in the genocidal outcome of these sanctions back in the 90s. But here, Jafari is talking about the illegal occupation of U.S. forces. He's talking about the result of the sanctions. The other thing that he is speaking to is these false diplomatic channels that are created. The series of Brussels conferences in which Syria has been generally left out of the dialogue, which has been led by the U.S. and EU nations that are largely responsible for perpetuating the conflict. Are you familiar with the Brussels conference groups that he's talking about that I guess were just leaving out Syria and working and circumventing the UN because it's only the UN that can mandate sanctions. And yet all these sanctions that the US has throughout the world now that are approaching what one third of the world's population or something. In that they are not endorsed by the UN and therefore illegal by nature, but specifically in the Syrian thing, what did you make of Jafari's comments? Well they're excellent comments. I think we've known for a while that when the United States conducts a war, it's total war. It's war on your monetary system. It's war on your financial system, it's cyber war, it's information war, and it's a war on the the population of the country itself, uh, as this is, you know, when you're talking about dabbling in the water supplies or uh, ruining dams or, you know, I mean, a particular incident of uh, firebombing the wheat fields, it just shows the, it just leaves you with something in the pit of your stomach, how you just, you can't believe that someone could be so monstrous to destroy the food supply for basically women and children who are not involved in the hostilities at all, which is the innocent victims of this kind of full-on, you know, full-spectrum mm-hmm. war. And it's not just so, someone. I mean, it's us. That's our policy. It's you, me, and everyone else in this country that we need to take ownership for, but continue. Thanks. Well, you can say we can take ownership for, but that, uh, that story alone only came out in one small publication in the, the foreign press. So you're not seeing it because in the United States, the mainstream media has been integrated into the Pentagon uh, system. So uh, basically, uh, you only get the information, the happy-go-lucky uh, news about uh, you know the exceptional people, and we're not getting the details about this. So I don't entirely blame the American people for this, and I'll point out why. One particular incident that that should have everyone uh, at least partially alarmed because this all-out war is now being conducted against them as well. And uh, we know that because, you know, after the Russiagate, you're talking about Michael Flynn, well, his case just collapsed. We know now that the Obama was at least and partially at the center of this entire operation that was conducted against a candidate and the opposition party. So you have people in the government conducting a regime change operation, much the same as Cuba, much the same as Syria, much the same as Libya, everywhere. And it just shows that now the American people and American democracy itself is now in the crosshairs of this deep state apparatus that is linked to the DNC, ostensibly, and of course linked with the mainstream media, and they're conducting operations to basically control the future of elections in the country. And they basically want to get it down to a one-party system, and uh, where we'll have, apparently, after this last, you know, COVID operation, we're going to have a permanent underclass in the United States. So we're due for some pretty dramatic changes in a very short period of time. Very good. And let's pivot to our last subject of the night. But before we do, I just wanted to comment. It was interesting to me. Flynn apparently had a number of problems with his leadership types of methodologies in in the DIA and 
could be criticized. He wasn't, he wasn't liked. He was not a go-along, get-along kind of guy. Yeah, he was yeah, he yeah. opinionated, and he didn't go along with the group think mainstream. And yeah. so he was, an out, he was an outsider, so he was targeted. That's what happened. Yeah. I mean, I'm just giving it to you short. You know, when you're in Syria, and everyone expects you to play along with this jihadist thing, and then you stand up in the room and say, look at this is a stupid plan. They don't just get rid of you. They destroy you. And that's what happened to Michael Flynn. I mean, I'm not defending him. He's a, a right-wing guy. I'm on the left. But it's like, I, I know what happened. He was a 30-year <laughs> man who served in uh, the service. He served his country with distinction. And they destroyed him. Absolutely. What I'm trying to get to, though, too, is the fact that when you look at why they went after Flynn, this makes a lot more sense to me that, you know, even though Obama put him in the DIA leading role and then dismissed him after two years of a three-year term, I think is what it was, there's no mention in the media at all about the fact that Flynn had this completely contrarian perspective that was much, much closer to the truth as you know, it can be objectively shown. Regarding the ideological and physical leadership profile of the opposition forces fighting Assad, that they were primarily terrorists, not moderate opposition fighting forces. And was uh, you know, kicked out probably more for that than any other reason, as you just, uh, as you just indicated. But in the coverage of Flynn, it's all about you know, not being forthcoming with a conversation he, might have ha he had with Kislyak and, and all of that, and no mention of any of this history that would suggest an ulterior motive for going after him from a deep state, if you will, perspective. Well, he was hated, but he was also the mm -hmm. entry point for them to spy on Trump because they had decided that this person who was outside of their circle of trusted allies could not be... It had nothing to do with the fact that Trump was a, a blowhard or a loudmouth or incompetent. He's not part of their circle, and so he couldn't be allowed to win. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this, this is the difference between... You know, I mean, you can be a senile old fool like Joe Biden, but if you're part of the circle... You can play with the, with the big boys, but Trump just isn't part, and he'll never be a part of that circle. Let's turn our last deal on this bombshell finding that just came out. I think a number of people have covered it in the alternative news, but it's not made it to the big-time news at all. But Aaron Mate, who's been very good in this following this deal, and actually, I might say, Mike, we've been talking about this for years, this whole Russian collusion, the absence of, of, of any type of substantive evidence in that. So Aaron Mate comes up with this finding, or not finding, but it, it was publicly made known that CrowdStrike admitted that there was no evidence that showed that they had that Russia actually stole those emails from the DNC servers, and that Russiagate was a fraud, particularly regarding the collusion. The new revelations are now that the allegations, the core allegations at the heart of the Russiagate which is this allegation that Russia stole emails from the Democratic Party and later gave them to WikiLeaks is not based in evidence that we have been told all along CrowdStrike had provided Mueller. Wait, wait a second. We've got to underscore this for your readers. In other words, the person who investigated the computers found no hard evidence that Russia was involved. Everyone has to let that sink in for a minute, okay? Mm -hmm. Russia was not involved. There was no evidence. Secondly... The intelligence committees, including Trey Gowdy and Schiff and the rest of them, knew this from the very beginning before they even appointed Robert Mueller. Let that sink in. They knew there was no evidence because they had testimony to the people who had access to the computers. 
So there never was a Russiagate, okay? No to your evidence point. of collusion. Yeah. I, I mean, people have to get this thinking because the, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal are still lying about this and still creating this great deception. Right. It's all over the Internet. You can find the truth if you want. There was no evidence of collusion. is not irrelevant. There was no evidence that the Russians lifted those emails. Second of all, they don't know if they are exfiltrated at all. WikiLeaks has them, but they, the, the guy in CrowdStrike doesn't know. Okay, it's not the but guy; it's the president. The president, the CrowdStrike president. Right. Yeah, right. but but what we know is that the senators and the congressmen who comprise the intelligence committee knew this for two years. Now I'm asking you, why didn't we have one whistleblower among them say, "Why are you letting this country get dragged down the rabbit hole when you knew?" Okay. Sure, you're going to spend some time in jail for blowing the whistle, but the American people deserve to know this. This is this is a question of national security, and they blew it. Uh, if you ask me, th- if they wanted to stand up for their country and be counted, they should have done it. Well, let me just add some more context and ask you to continue <clears throat> to reflect on this. The president, that, that would be Sean Henry, he was actually a former FBI official that had worked closely with Robert Mueller. His name's Sean Henry. He His testimony was back in, like you said, two years ago, three years ago, December of 2017. And this is the House Intelligence Committee recently releasing these documents that included this this information there. So to your point, it's very clear that they did know this information for this period of time. Okay, so let me ask you a question, devil's advocate, okay? So if they knew there was no information, but they knew that the media would be entirely reliable in supporting their fantasy story, how would they know that if the media wasn't completely corrupted? Okay? I mean, it tells you, it explains to you in detail what our media really is. It's a propaganda system, an airtight propaganda system. No, that's, that's, that's the take-home message. You hit the nail on the head, that if you and I and everybody before us was questioning this all along, the, the information's there. It's, it's out there yep. to, to find it. They chose and to not go, find it. They, it's yeah, a conscious choice. Day by day, article by article, accusation after accusation, false claim, anonymous sources, secret, you know, confidential informants, all of this stuff. The New York Times knew, and they kept spinning this web, this web of lies that entrapped a good portion of the population who still believe it, and will never be convinced otherwise. The, the New York Times has never issued a retraction and has never explained its behavior and has never apologized for misleading the people. That's why when you have that many people deceived on an issue of national security, you have to assume that the media itself is not the enemy of the people. That greatly understates what they're doing. They are a national security risk, okay? So that's how I see it. Yeah, it's a complete dismissal of their obligations to inform, to say the very least. Hey, lastly, so CrowdStrike also, they were wrong and had to retract a deal about the Ukraine. They, they, they claimed Russia had had uh, tapped into the Ukrainian Yeah, that was home. long ago, and so their credibility was uh, was eroded from the very beginning. Well, well, that, also, remember, all, yeah. every single person who was indicted and convicted under this Russiagate scam, not one of them were indicted or convicted on charges in any way related to collusion or the stealing of emails. It was all like, you know, what was it with uh, Manafort? It was bribery. It was right. uh, with Papadopoulos who was lying. With Flynn, it was supposedly lying when he was he was being uh, investigated without even uh, 
you know, being informed that he was being investigated. But, you know, we, you can't let this pass by, okay, because there's more information that's going to, uh, a wealth of information that's supposed to be released in the next week by Grenwell, whatever, whoever is at the yeah. DIA now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and that's the, this is the heavy-hitting stuff. This is the plot that I've been waiting for for three years. And this is where we're going to see that there's a straight line between this coup in the United States and John Brennan, the man who ran the CIA. And, I mean, I think uh, Stephen Cohen and uh, Ray McGovern and some of the other people have been writing out, they sniffed this out years ago, okay? This thing was created by one man, and it was his concoction, his contraption, and he's the man who's going to be held accountable. Will he ever serve time in jail? No. But we're going to know whose fingerprints are all over this, and it's John Brennan. Well, let's end it right there. Thanks, Mike, for joining us tonight. This has been Bringing Light into Darkness with Mike Whitney and your host, Pedro Gatos. Thank you, Pedro. To further study the content of this show and other past shows of Bringing Light into Darkness, please feel free to visit pedrogatos.org. All comments can be forwarded once again to pgatos00 at gmail.com. It's pgatos, the number 00 at gmail.com. We take you out with Land of Naivety. Yeah.